you would, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians. After the four Gospels, you've got Acts, Romans, and then there it is. We know from last Sunday's overview of this whole letter that Paul is having to write this letter to the church that he founded in Corinth in order to deal with a host of problems, a host of problems that had appeared after he'd left. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is the Apostle Paul. He's extremely gifted. He's called. We'll talk about that. He spent a year and a half founding a church, feeding, ministering to, getting people established. And then two or three years later, he gets reports of utter chaos in this particular body. So what are the problems and issues? Well, here's a quick, fast list. And it's probably not got all the details, but it comes close. Quarreling over which teacher or preacher is the best to follow. Boasting about how important their social position, knowledge, or eloquence was. Jealousy and strife over seemingly everything. Sexual immorality and all sorts of impurity. Suing one another in the civil courts. Marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, and widowhood, all those issues. Food offered to idols. Can we eat it? Surrendering your rights for the benefit of others. Idolatry versus doing everything for the glory of God. All sorts of public worship issues, including how they're actually disrespecting the Lord's Supper, the use, misuse, purpose, and principles of spiritual gifts, what real Christian love is and looks like, the vital importance of truths about the resurrection. How do you like that list? We learned last week that the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church calls their attention to the most important question for everyone in the church to ask first. And that is, why did God join us together in Christ? And the answer to that very important question just shows us how easily we can miss the point. God intends to display his own reflection in the church to manifest his own character. So the church is to be the manifestation of the living God in and to the world that we live in. That is what each and every one of us has to get, has to get first. That has to be why you and I are here. First, more important than any other criteria. And when you do get this, the Christian life begins to change 
or maybe it's better to say how you think about the Christian life begins to change. And Paul knows something that's become very obvious. The Corinthians do not get it, at least not yet. Paul is writing to teach the young in the faith Christians about the church, specifically what should characterize the church and why these particular characteristics must typify the church. So do you see, do I see how realizing the purpose of the Lord's church to display his own reflection and to manifest his own character will directly affect every one of the issues that the Corinthian church has. Every one of them. The church is to be the manifestation of the living God in this world. So, every one of their problems will only be dealt with if they as individuals, united to one another as a congregation, submit to the word of the Lord that will be delivered directly to them by the Apostle Paul. That's a big if for this group. And we know that this is going to take time. It's not a quick fix unless God ordains something very, very special. Because one of the bigger problems that will make it take time that's actually starting to grow larger and larger as Paul addresses this in this first letter, is that in his next letter to them, the second letter to the Corinthians, almost the whole letter is taken up in him having to defend his own ministry, whether he has really been appointed as an apostle of Christ. In other words, his authority as an apostle, is under attack because of the false apostles who gained such a following during all this mess. And not all those guys were false apostles, but there were some who grew out of the original hi, we're the main guy kind of deal to actually be teaching all sorts of heresy. And they, too, got a following. If the church is supposed to manifest or reflect the living God in this world, then what should characterize the church, and maybe even more important than that, is why should the things we're going to talk about characterize the church? I mean, what difference will it make? Well, there's three things that the church should be which come up over and over and over again in this letter that we talked about last week. We're to be holy, united, and loving. And why? Because God is holy, one God, and loving. Paul begins his letter in verses 1 through 9 by laying a foundation of who we are in Christ and how we became that way. Interestingly, and not really a surprise, and I mentioned this last week as well, 
is how Paul deals with all five points that the ladies heard in the DVD seminar a week ago. They're arranged a little differently, but they're all in these first nine verses that Paul bases the rest of the book on. So we, I want to mention them again. This is another way of thinking about the same issues. These came from the book of Daniel. What? Isn't it great how the thread of God's redemptive plan starts in the beginning of the Old Testament and goes through the end? And as far as dealing with his people, exactly the same things are vital. Well, Daniel and his friends had to learn how to live in Babylon in captivity as part of God's people. Now, I don't know too many people that would call Amarillo Babylon, at least not yet. That's usually a nickname for, you know, that city out there in Northern California. We've all heard that. But it's an apt description. It describes the culture that we live in as well. So Daniel is really a book that's primarily about how to live wisely in the kingdom of the world as citizens of the kingdom of God. Isn't that the same issue we're talking about that Paul is dealing with? How do these people live in a place like Corinth as the people of God? Because obviously living there has had an effect on them that they don't even realize to a great degree. So, the message of Daniel was five things. You have to know five things. You have to know who you really are, which is what we're going to see today in the first three verses. And, we, and you might be asking, well, that sounds like a really dumb question. I know who I am. Well, maybe not. Maybe you do, but you forgot. Because you're not primarily who you think you are as whatever you think you are in this world. You're primarily something and somebody else if you belong to him. Who you really are, you have to know what will last. You can probably figure that one out already. You need to know whom to depend on, and it's not you. You need to know who lived this way. You need to know how the story ends. And now in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 1, the first nine verses, Paul begins his letter by making all these same points, just in a different order in a little different way. So notice how the vital truths that Paul conveys here all focus on what God has made us in Christ. It's no coincidence that when we forget who we are in Christ and what Christ did to save us, we easily get off track. Today we're going to go over the first three verses of this introductory passage, which is actually the greeting, but I'm still going to read the first nine just to keep it in context. That's another way of saying I thought we could get through nine 
but we're only going to get through three. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I think the tone of this needs to be right, and I may mess that up, but I'm going to try. Knowing what this letter is about, the tone of the greeting is really important. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, if you've read the rest of this letter and know how serious all the problems are the people of this church are displaying, this greeting and Paul's prayer, a prayer of thanks for them, is absolutely amazing. I doubt if one person in our congregation, well, maybe a couple, would start off a letter where you're going to have to rebuke on every, almost every sentence what people are doing, what they're thinking, how they're living with this kind of a greeting. And prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning. Paul founded this church, and now just a couple of years later, it is a wreck. In verse 1, instead of just identifying himself by saying, Paul an apostle, Paul writes, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Called. We see that a lot. God had effectively called Paul to not only being a person belonging to Christ, and being his savingly, but also called him to be one of the apostles. And done so as the, the call was from the risen Christ. Paul never got over the fact that God saved the man he was 
who was actively pursuing and following until he did arrest the followers of Christ. Why? To have them hopefully executed. You heard in Sunday school that Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners. And that was in the present tense. He never lost that attitude, which kept him grounded. And it kept him reading, studying, praying, teaching in a way where he was accountable to his Lord, who had saved him anyway. And when he was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't taking a vacation up along the coast. He was following Christians to arrest them, hopefully to have them executed. And he met the Lord. And Jesus said to him after he blinded him, Why are you persecuting me? And everything clicked. And he lost it. But God saved this lost realization of a man so there's a lot that these words convey that we need to consider now transfer that years later not sure exactly how many he's on a missionary tour he's been taught by Christ in the wilderness he met after this experience the Christians who fled from him. I wonder why. News spreads about a guy like that who's out to arrest them, to get them executed. They were scared to death of him. Can you imagine persuading these followers of Christ already that God had got him? Well, he did. But it wasn't him, it was the Lord that opened their eyes to see what he had done in this man. And it wasn't long before they realized that he had been taught and with his vast and incredible knowledge of the Old Testament already as a Pharisee, when those connections were made, he had a special gift to proclaim and communicate the word, even if he was not articulate. And he says that himself. In fact, that's one of the things that got him in trouble here. These other guys were more flash and dash. But the spirit works through the spirit's power of the word of God when he proclaims the gospel and brings people to himself. This is an amazing, amazing, amazing scenario. So as he looks at these people, do you see the judgment finger coming out? We are going to see harsh rebuke in this letter. But we see that he starts off by greeting them 
as an apostle of Christ. And you know, most of the time he just says an apostle, but a couple other books and this one, he says called by the called to be an apostle. Here he says called by the will of God to be the, an apostle of Christ Jesus. When the risen Christ called Paul to be an apostle, he gave Paul divine authority to preach the gospel and to address all these churches. As already mentioned, part of the Corinthian problem was that so many people in the church were listening to men claiming Paul had no real authority from God to correct any of them. So let me ask you a question. This is the Word of God. Is your opinion of this book outweigh what this book teaches? That's the question. This church was raising that. If this is God's Word, and you are not submitting first to it, and your first thing out of your mouth is excuses, and well, so-and-so said this, and this guy said this, but no, something that's black and white and clear in this book, I don't know whether I want to do that or not. You're already headed for destruction in many, many ways. And boy, if this book does not warn us about that, then it doesn't warn us about anything else. This is first and foremost what's going on here. Paul knew that this was going on, that people didn't were questioning his authority, and he knew that, of course, which is why he immediately starts off by giving these credentials. It's like saying, just, just remember... I was called by the risen Christ to be an apostle. Nah, you won't. You just signed up for it because you thought that'd be great. No, I was on my way to put you to death, figuratively speaking. I was trying to kill the followers of Christ. My whole life was committed to ruining him, his followers, his reputation. I'm an apostle called by him to be his apostle. There's a lot of weight in those words. And an apostle, this word means someone sent to act on whose authority? The person that sends them. So what is he really saying? He's saying, I have been made one of these men when I speak on these issues, it is Christ who's speaking to you. The New Testament apostles were specifically chosen by Christ for the special work of founding the church. And they were given gifts to accomplish that task only during this initial period of church history when the church was founded. And after all these apostles died, there were never any more apostles, despite what some claim today. And there's many today who claim to be apostles. And does anybody follow them? Yes. 
thinking that they really are, and then they're misled in tragic, tragic ways. Now, there was another name here. You know, I think their way of writing letters actually a little more upfront than ours, and that's a pun because their name is upfront. Where do we? We sign it at the end. These guys put who the letter is from at the beginning. Do you remember Sosthenes? In the account we read last week from this part of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 18:17, this name comes up. And he is described as the ruler of the synagogue, probably replacing Crispus, who's also in that account. And when Paul was brought before the Corinthian civil tribunal by some very infuriated Jews, it seems that Sosthenes was the ringleader of that group. And the account says Sosthenes was beaten after the proconsul let Paul go. Why did he let him go? Because Here was a bunch of religious extremists who were trying to get rid of this guy, and it's all about their religion. I don't want to even hear it. This is basically what happened. But he was beaten up as they let him go. We don't know whether he was beaten by the Jews or the Greeks. If the Jews that he was with beat him up, it was because the idea of bringing Paul before the court didn't exactly go as planned. They were ridiculed and dismissed. If he was written up by the Greeks, they probably felt like that their time was wasted by this Jew who brought Paul in. Either way, he was beaten up. Sosthenes, you notice, is described as what? A brother in Christ. Probably Paul's amanuensis. A little word that means a secretary who usually did the writing. But you wouldn't do the writing and be called a brother unless you were on the same page as Paul. And obviously he was known. In verse 2 we read this. To the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Would you call these people sanctified and saints? Most of us, if we start out writing this, if this was us writing this letter, we would get to a point of, okay, I need to start this off gently because they won't listen later unless I say something nice. So we may make up a bunch of half-truths and say stuff. Is that what Paul's doing? If we could look around in this body and we are all sinners and we are all still sinners... And we could all say we are chief of sinners if we were humble enough to realize how much our lives have offended God and how much we still wander. We looked around and we saw this person, and it, you know, we can put people in those slots in that list, which is not a good practice to do because then we'd be doing this and we couldn't think about it later 
Um, we couldn't think, not think about it later at lunch, and we'd just, our attitudes would start being horrible, et cetera, et cetera. That's just being honest. That's what happens to us. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all these other people that call Jesus Lord. So let's go through it and see if we can see what's going on here. Church of God. Notice who the church belongs to. God. Democracy or representative democracy or actually a republic has so many blessings that we enjoy because of the structure. Does it not? But one weakness is that the attitude comes in, if we can just get enough people on our side, we can get our way. Paul recognizes that this attitude is apparent here in this church. People are fighting and quarreling over who to follow and who's the best guy that teaches and this way and that way. And it was horrible. The atmosphere must have just been sickening. Who does the church belong to? God. The people in the church belong to God, not to themselves or any leader or any group, only to God. In other words, this is something we have trouble with. Every man and woman in history has had trouble with this, but especially because we've been raised to think only of our rights, our privileges, and what we want, we can fulfill. We are not our own. If you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. You cannot legitimately call him Lord and in the next sentence say, well, I don't care about that. And that's what Paul is saying. And it's a message for the centuries. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification in the New Testament means what? It means being made like Christ. You could substitute holy in there. H-O-L-Y. Not W-H-O-L-L-Y. There's a big difference. Holy. There are two ways that it's talked about in the New Testament. As definitive and as progressive. And sometimes both together. In other words, first, God definitively sets us apart as holy in Christ as a completed action in the past. And you will see that in many places in the New Testament. This is one of them. Second, this definitive work of making us holy positionally 
has continuing results. As God then works out in our lives the process of progressively becoming more like Christ. And this is a process that we are actively engaged in. Paul speaks about this ongoing process in one of the favorite verses that questions are raised the minute you read it in Philippians 2.13. I got the Christian Standard Bible and it adds a little bit of flavor by having some stretched out meanings for some of the words. Just a couple. For it is God who is working in you. Enabling you both to desire and to work out his good pleasure. Does that help? You're responsible to work this out and be faithful. But it's still God who is working in you to enable you to do that. That keeps you from what? Man, you can be holy. Look at me. All I did was write a list. I check it off every day. I'm holy. That attitude doesn't work. But I bet there was a lot of people at this church that had it. So, here in verse 2, the tense of this verb is very important. It's in the perfect tense which indicates that Paul is talking about the first kind of sanctification, God's definitive, completed action in us that has continuing results. And this means that in this decisive act of God, there has not only been a decisive break with the enslaving power of sin, but also a decisive and irreversible union with Christ in his resurrection. A union by means of which the believer is enabled to live in the newness of life, which is what Paul says in Romans 6, 4, which is true of every genuine Christian. Now, this is not something that you can read a couple of definitions and all of a sudden go, yeah, I got it all. This is something you'll be looking at the rest of your lives as Christians. But the point Paul is making is what? If you want to keep the union of Christ's example, when you became his and he bought you with the price of his son's blood, he placed you into Christ, union with Christ. When God looks at you, what does he see? He sees Christ. In the Old Testament example, there are other things involved, but the picture is still there. It's just a different color. It's red. The shed blood on the mercy seat is what Christ sees as he looks at you, the law is underneath the blood. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, 
lived a life of perfection. He actually fulfilled the law on the ark. So his blood was worth the payment for you and me. In other words, there's a whole lot involved in a couple of little bitty sentences here. And I have a feeling that Paul taught these things the first year and a half. And he actually says that. Because everybody else was, oh, I like following this guy. I like following this guy. He said this. He said this. He said this. And what does he say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. And then in the last chapter in our book that we will get to by the Lord's grace at some point, it, the whole thing is about the resurrection. Because when you get off on one part, you end up going, well, there's no way you could really be a resurrection. And what does he say in chapter 15 and elsewhere? If Christ is not raised, we are wasting our time. There's no resurrection. We're all destined for corruption and condemnation. So that's the bookends of this particular book, one side and the other. A union in Christ, it's true of every Christian. Now, we need to do this every once in a while without being real apparent. I can only one that can see where your eyes are going. Keep your head straight. And if you know there's brothers and sisters sitting around you, you know, do this thing. And see if you can actively say they're sanctified. Did you make it? You were doing pretty well until you saw, oh, saw. And then you realize, ooh, we're all in the same boat. Maybe you need to start by realizing that your name before the Lord God is saint. If you know him, you are one of his set-apart holy ones. Why is Paul doing this? Keep asking that question. Can you see why Paul in this letter, why he begins it with this amazing and encouraging truth about who we are in Christ? Remember the first thing from Daniel's deal, ladies? You need to know who you really are. First, he powerfully reminds them how they've been made holy in Christ so that when the rebukes come, the message is, you have been set apart and made holy in Christ. So why are you living like you don't even know him? Know who you really are and start acting like it. That's a powerful motivation especially in light of realizing what he did to purchase you. Next, he says, called to be saints, set apart ones or holy ones. So he's using both sanctified and saints here, putting them together. That's pretty powerful. 
It's God who effectively called these people to himself. God chose and called these specific people to be his own people. How does that help Paul's attitude? Kind of like you parents need help raising a kid. Why? Because you see every side of them. And you've got to remember something. They're mine. I can't just, you know. That's an extreme example. In so much more of a way, Paul looks at his spiritual children here, and he's, what? He's got to remind them who they really are and that they're a gift from who? God. So when we look around in a congregation, one thing that really helps is what? God called so-and-so to be his own, which means in a big, huge, worldly way, we're all a part of that body of Christ. But he not only did that, he put this person right there next to me. And then the next thought, as you start to realize how humbling that is, is if you change places with that person, that person's probably going, oh God, you made that person a part of Christ and I'm united to them. How does that change how you think about one another? There's nothing more powerful than that. God chose the people to put in his body. We didn't. There's nothing, this is nothing less than an exclamation point to being sanctified. Is it not? The same basic point, but it's like an ironic explanation, exclamation in some ways. John MacArthur wrote, the Corinthian believers were holy in God's sight, regardless of their sinful living and distorted doctrine. They were saints because they'd been sanctified, set apart from sin, made holy in Christ. According to Scripture, every true believer in Christ, whether faithful or unfaithful, well-known or unknown, leader or follower, is a set-apart person, a holy person, a saint. This is the believer's position or standing in Christ. We are called to be saints, and that refers to the effective call of God to salvation. So the church belongs to God, who through Christ has called his people out of the world to a life of what? Holiness. To reflect his character. Anybody who makes an argument that he does not call us to holiness before him does not know him. How can you know the God of the universe and realize what he's done for you if you completely make fun of, joke about, be apathetic to 
if he lives in me, people should see that. They should see the desire for me to serve him, for me to humble myself before him, for me to put his thoughts above my thoughts. And this is a lifelong process, which is the other part of that sanctification, is it not? But we have to cooperate with it. So what this is, is a declaration of their purpose in life. Is that your purpose? Their purpose in life, that they are important and unique because their creator has declared them to be. This is not American Idol. This is about being bought with Christ's blood. And so recognize this extraordinary privilege and gift that your whole life is wrapped up in giving back to him the glory that is his. And enjoying that forever. Sound familiar? They've already received the ultimate word of approval, acceptance, and identity. And being called to be holy ones or saints means that their identity and purpose was externally bestowed upon them rather than working to build their identity or invent their own sense of purpose. They'd receive theirs by way of the gracious call of God. I think one of the most distinctive things about being believers together in Christ or as a church, is that our identity was bestowed upon us first and foremost. We don't have to waste our whole lives trying to invent one on Facebook or any other social platform. We already have an identity. Our problem is we get mixed up and we don't want to do what? Maybe we really don't want God's identity. Maybe it doesn't really mean that much to us. Then the questions start coming. Are you really who you think you are? In practice, in their lives right now, in this letter, they were gross sinners in the sense of they were sinners, but it was becoming very apparent not restrained, acting just like their culture. But in their position in union with Christ, they were saints, most of them. Do you realize this book? In chapter 5, there's somebody having an immoral, incestuous relationship with a family member. And Paul says, don't even go through the discipline process. Get rid of the guy. Destroying the reputation. Even the pagans don't live like this. That's chapter 5. You don't have to just go right there and read it. And then what happens eight chapters later? The love chapter. We have every side of every issue in this book. It is beautiful. It is amazing. 
But we go probably know a lot more about chapter 13 than we do about, oh, this is serious what we're doing during the Lord's Supper. Where people get in and try to grab all the food first and they don't care about the other people even having a meal, much less celebrating it to the Lord. And that was going on all the time. How can God see the Corinthians as sanctified holy ones when it was so obvious that their lives were anything but? Make it more personal. How can God see us as saints when we and everyone else knows our lives are riddled with sin? God sees us as holy because he sees us through his holy and righteous son who took our place and he has implemented, implanted in us, excuse me, a new nature that now desires to know and serve Christ. Our new nature is disposed that way. One of the most powerful deterrents to go ahead and sin, you know that tendency? It won't make any difference. I'll just go ahead. Or I can't quit. I'll just go ahead. Or I just want to do this. I'll just go ahead. Is the simple preaching to ourselves of what Paul has written so far in one verse. My identity is totally wrapped up in my Savior. I belong to God, and the church I belong to belongs to God. Amen. And he's already sanctified me, made me holy by uniting me to Christ. He sees me as holy. How he sees me in Christ already is what's working to make me more and more now in this life. What? More like him. And I am together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This reminds me even more of my identity and my purpose and my responsibility to remember who I really am. I know about you, but this is something you've got to rehearse a lot. When you want to turn into Mr. and Mrs. Road Rage, who am I? I am not in the Daytona 500. I don't want to have a wreck on every fourth turn. This is ridiculous. I'm, this is not competitive. Who am I? I am a sanctified driver. Make it personal. That's a silly example. There's a lot more deep things. So before writing what he's thankful about them in verses 4 through 9, which is what we get to look forward to next week, Paul finishes his greeting with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We would put a but in there. Well, grace and peace to you, but boy, you better listen. Grace to peace to you, but you've got two months. And then if not, okay, get that? Although typical of Paul's greetings in his letter, this is meaningful because you can see now his heartfelt attitude of love towards this church that he knows he has to appeal to in the love of Christ. Does this part here, one through three, set the table very well for this thankfulness prayer? Yeah, it really does. And as we close today, I encourage you, especially if you're already familiar with what's ahead, to consider what it took 
for Paul to write so graciously. I mean, get an answer for that. And you know what most of it is? He saved me. I was literally on the road to kill his followers. And he just literally came out of nowhere and said, why are you persecuting me? And we need to realize the depth of our own sin so we can realize the grandeur of his holiness and say exactly the same thing. To have this genuine, caring, and loving attitude that he expresses here towards people whom he knew had not only rejected so much of his teaching, but they'd actually rejected him. And folks, that's a whole other ballgame. A lot of times you can stand it if they're rejecting something you know is right, and it's not here. But boy, when it turns here, we have a dog in the fight, and it's me. Think about that. Paul's life had been changed by the powerful grace of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask for your grace and your peace as we go through this letter. We pray for you to make us honest before you and ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you'd make us realize that our only hope is in you and that we have to bow before you. We belong to you and we have to be willing to set our wishes and desires aside and want what's best for your glory and for other people's good. And this is a huge job that we look to you to accomplish in each and every one of us, and we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? And just in case you didn't take that seriously, listen to this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.